Okay, now for our first message uh, by Curtis Whiteley, entitled, To Build Up the Body. Thank you, Matt. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here today. Uh, very surprised. Uh, uh, a nice, pretty crowd here for the weather that we got in. I had heard later this week that we were supposed to get this uh, uh, snow. And so, uh, like was mentioned before, we'll keep an eye on that. And, uh, uh, but I'm glad everyone's here. It's wonderful to see everyone like it always is on God's Sabbath day. Uh, and if you look at the title, as Matt just mentioned, of my message, it is to build up the body. To build up the body. I want to start off by just kind of throwing some terms, a series of maybe some questions about what comes to mind when you hear these terms. And you can just silently in your mind think about this, but think about what you think about when you hear these words. For example, when you hear the word church, what comes to your mind? When you hear the word ministry, what does this make you think about? When you hear the word growth, what do you picture growth looking about? And when you hear the word maturity, what do you think that that looks like? Because these are some of the things that we're going to get into today. In particularly, talking about the church, which we know properly is the body of Christ. Now, all of us are individuals, all of us are you know, people who have come from various backgrounds, many of us have come from similar backgrounds, uh, you know, as far as church history and our uh, involvement in different uh, church organizations, but you could probably go out onto the street uh, in any town, any city, and there would probably be a high amount of people that when they think of the word church, what comes to their mind is what? A building. Church in most people's minds, and I think a lot of this is just because how we use it in our English language, it's embedded that it pops up to, you know, in, inside their mind. Uh, a building, maybe there's, there's uh, they, they think of singing, they think of a pulpit, uh, they think of people who are sitting in pews. And of course, that's, you know, probably makes a lot of sense because every time you drive down the road, when you see a church somewhere where people gather and are, whether it be a Baptist church, a Methodist church, a church of God, a Pentecostal church, usually it all has ending or in that name, in the title of that congregation, the word church in it. When you hear the word ministry, oftentimes, and I remember growing up as a kid, and I always thought, you know, ministry is just something synonymous with someone who's a minister. Ministry is for ministers, people who are pastors. I think of people who are behind a pulpit, who are preaching, who are going out and doing evangelistic campaigns. Maybe they're on the radio, maybe they're on TV, maybe they're a missionary. When I heard the word ministry, what always came to my mind growing up was automatically people who are either employed by a church, people who are actually, that's what they do for a living, they're a professional minister, they're a pastor, they're an evangelist, they're a, a, a missionary. That's what I always thought about whenever I thought about the word ministry. And it always brought to mind that a ministry is always for someone who is actually a professional minister. Now most of us all know that the Greek word church is ekklesia. You've probably heard of that term before. And it just basically, in its most basic form, means a group of called out ones. The assembly. 
And in, in the Christian context, it's talking about the assembly of Christ's body. All of us are a part of this body. All of us here. But not everyone here is just the body alone. In other words, we know uh, that the body of Christ is very diverse. The body of Christ is a worldwide organism. It's not limited to one church. It's not limited to one denomination, one uh, church historical heritage denomination. It is a living organism that is made up of people all over this entire world. And in this church, what we have seen time and time again, and I'm not saying when I say in this church, I mean universally, the church at large, the world church. In this church, the, the scriptures, the New Testament tells us that everybody that is a member of this body has been given a gift. Has been given something to contribute to the equipping and to the building up of this body. Now I have two points today. Just two. And the first one is real simple. In order to build up the body, we must as members of that body walk worthy of the calling that is before us. My second point, which we'll get into in a few minutes, is that in order to build up the body, not only do we have to walk worthy of our calling, but we also have to use what Christ has given each and every one of us, which is going to be very diverse. It's going to be measured differently depending on the person. And so let's go to Ephesians, the, first, uh, the fourth chapter, and we're going to read the string of passages, verses 1 through 17. 1 through 17. I want to just kind of make a, a nice little note here. There is no way I could cover all of the different complexities that Paul is presenting us in just one message. No one could. The book of Ephesians is looked at as one of the most complex books in the entire New Testament. Jam-packed with theological concepts. So much is involved in this book. It's one of the most heavily probably researched books in the New Testament in, in regards to trying to understand the, the nitty-gritty theological uh, understandings that Paul is trying to deliver to his audience. But we're just going to look at a few things in regards to building up the body of Christ. Let's read verse 1. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended for far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all... Come to the unity of the faith 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God to, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head of Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And that's a mouthful, as you can imagine, the things that Paul has to say to us right here in this string of passages. Okay? So our first point, looking at it, in order to build up the body, we must walk, as Paul tells us right here, worthy of our calling. Now, I don't know about you, but that's... That's, a, that's quite a task. Let's think about that. The word worthy in the Greek literally means bringing up the beam. And what that is describing is, is that imagining your calling, your Christ, that we are to be following is this foundational beam and our conduct, our life is supposed to be in equivalence, worthy of that foundational beam. That's a tall order, brethren. There's no way around it. We have to ask ourselves, are we equivalently living out our calling and in 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 our conduct of life in a way that's properly and equivalently reflecting our calling as Christians? Followers of the one who lived on this earth perfectly and died for all of us, our sins and rose again. Now, we can just think about it. What are some of the things that drives our conduct in life? Let's think about it. Our actions. What are some of the things that influences our actions? How about our thoughts? How about the attitudes that we have? How about the consumption and entertainment that we uh, indulge in? How about maybe the people or the things that we surround ourselves with? All of these things right here help determine, help, I guess you would say, influence whether or not we are going to walk worthily of our calling. And we know that right after this, the Apostle Paul gives us a series of character traits, a series of character traits to show us things that are basically showing us to be worthy, worthy characteristics of a person who is worthily walking in their calling. Let's look at the first one, humility. Paul says and talks about humility. And I don't, I, we, there's no argument, there's no greater example of humility than Jesus Christ himself. And the things that he said, we know that Philippians, the second chapter, one of the most uh, amazing passages in the entire Bible that describes to us just what Christ gave up in order to come down here. Not only being in the form of God, but gave that up and didn't even think anything about it in order to come down to earth and subject himself to humanity. And he did so without even thinking. He humbled himself. We know that there was, a, an, there was an example in the scriptures when Jesus was with his disciples when he was walking on this earth in Matthew the 20th chapter. You've probably all read it before and they were talking about you know, who's going to be the greatest and, and things like that. And Jesus says, hey, look, quit thinking like Gentiles. Quit thinking like the world thinks. Those who are great, those who are, are the ones that are really marked by true, uh, you know, a true marking of God are the ones who are marked by service, not vanity. Those are the ones who are the true followers of Christ. 
Another characteristic that Paul mentions is gentleness. It's the same word that you find in the New Testament or the, the King James Version for meekness. It describes a person who has a considerate spirit or attitude, and some may even see this in the world as a characteristic of weakness because they might see someone who is gentle or who is meek as being someone who is passive in life or someone who is maybe you know, non-confrontational, someone who's weak. And you could probably you know, point out a lot of things, uh, whether it be advertisements on TV, the things that are out there to read, magazines. Our entire society tells us you know, these aren't qualities that should be you know, looked at as good. Those are weak qualities. Those aren't the kind of qualities that you want to strive for. You want confidence. You want to, you know, it's totally different the way the world looks at things versus what God and the way that he looks at things. But you know what? I think that meekness is one of the greatest signs of true strength simply because true gentleness and meekness demonstrates a self-control that I don't know about you, but I think that it's actually more difficult to control one's actions, control one's tongues, control one's attitude in the face of adversity, in the face of people doing things, maybe something wrong to you. And so we see that gentleness, it plays, it's a byproduct of humility. It's a byproduct of humility. The last one, or, uh, the last one we're going to touch upon is patience and long-suffering. Reluctance to avenge wrongs literally means someone who is long-tempered. You're not going out. You're not looking to settle old scores. You're not looking to you know, hold on to grudges. Those aren't the things that you're looking for. Someone who's truly you know, humble and truly has a gentleness to them, it's going to be a natural byproduct for them to also be someone who is patient and long-suffering. Let's just think about this, and these both, by the way, are fruits of the Spirit that is described in the, 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 the epistle to the Galatians that we have all heard so much about. But let's just think about this and someone and, and, and striving to be patient and long-suffering and thinking about maybe people who do things to us and, you know, maybe it's easy to kind of get mad at them and hold a grudge and maybe, you know, we, there's just this human nature, you know, someone hits us, you know, I'm speaking metaphorically, what do we want to do? We want to launch back and hit them, right? An eye for an eye. That's kind of the attitude that we, we typically in our human nature we want. And we see this, to, you know, from the, from the child level all the way up to the adult level. But let's just think about this. How patient, how long-suffering, is Christ with me and you, both in the past and even in the present and we know in the future. Let's think about, you know, I, and so many times I remember uh, you know, my calling. I was baptized when I was 19 years old. That might be a little younger than you. And maybe you have a different story. Maybe you have a more interesting story than me. But I remember whenever I was graduating high school and uh, I played sports in, in high school, and that was kind of a, a very big part of my life. And I remember when I graduated high school and I decided not to go to play college football. I decided just to kind of stay home and go to college close to home. And I remember thinking there was this, this emptiness, right? There was this emptiness that I had because usually, you, you know, you get out of school in May, and then you're going back to, to school in August. And what's in August? That's when, you know, that's, that thing that's really important to you in life that you focused upon for so many years, for 12 years of your life, or 10 years, however many it was, that was a huge part of my life, and it wasn't there anymore. And so there was an emptiness that I felt. I mean, literally, I can tell you that. And it's, you know, of course, there's a lot worse things in life, but I kind of felt like, you know, what's my purpose now? You know, this is what I've been so focused on my entire life. Now I'm like, you know, what is this? And, and I re remember being young and thinking, you know what? I, I'm really not, I'm really not 
that good of a person. You know, I would do things, I would be involved in things that really, you know, wasn't in any shape, form, very Christ-like, wasn't very honorable to God at all. I had grown up in church my entire life. I had stints where basically I was very interested in the church. But I remember always thinking, you know what, someday I'm going to get right with God. I remember thinking that, and there's always that thought, you know, I, I'm going to... It's kind of like the diet thing. It's like, you know what, I'm going I'm to start that diet, you know, after, you know, the beginning of the year or so. It's kind of like, you know what, I'm going to stop sinning and, you know, start praying to God, you know, uh, on January 15th. <laughs> I mean, literally, that's kind of sometimes how our brain works. You know, it's like, you can liken, you know, following Christ to some people, you know, sometimes people, I think, might approach it like a diet. Like, you know what? You know, put the Twinkies away, put the, you know, put the hot dogs away and start eating, you know, broccoli and, and, and chicken and things like that. And, you know, it, it, you could look at it the same way. You know, well, you know, I like my sin right now. I'll, you know, on January 15th, I'm going to stop doing these things. I'm going to stop, you know, whatever that sin may be. Okay. And so we just have to ask ourselves how patient God has been with us. Now, worthy of our calling, what's the purpose as Paul tells us, the purpose, the common purpose, is to continue in unity. You know, I have, as many of you have, have had the luxury, or I guess you'd say privilege would be a better way of putting it, uh, of going out and being able sometimes to meet people in other churches, uh, and I'm talking primarily in our tradition, because that's who I'm so exposed to. Uh, you know, maybe it'd be a Feast of Tabernacles, I know that this has been touched upon before, uh, when we came back from the feast and we were doing feast reports, we are very blessed in this congregation. Very blessed in a lot of different ways. We have our own building. That's one of the things that we're blessed for. We have had leaders that have, you know, uh, taken on leadership roles for, you know, 30 plus years in this congregation and maybe even longer than that. I'd have to, you know, I don't know the numbers right offhand. And that word unity uh, is very important. Because so easily, you could go out and you could look at other congregations that maybe had the exact same thing, but because something happened, something took place, oftentimes it's something very petty, and that unity is broken, and maybe they're not even a church anymore. There's one not very far from here that we can, you know, in our own state, that that has taken place just in the last year or so. So that word unity... Right here, Paul lists a lot of ones, a lot of singulars. One body. We have all been placed into that one body. And that one body doesn't just make up all the people who are in the Tulsa Church of God. That one body does not just make up people who are in a Church of God tradition. It is one body that is made up of people all over this world. We are not the judge of who is in that body. Because we are not the head. Christ is the head, we are not. We are the body parts. And we are not to tell the head who is in the body and who is not. One spirit, all of us have been given the same spirit. And this one spirit dwells in all of us. One hope. We all have the same hope. Eventually, we all, when it comes down to it, we all have the same hope. And that hope is basically to be unified with Christ. That there is a kingdom of God on the other side of this horizon, of this world. And that there's a greater purpose of why we are in existence here. One Lord. One Lord. Only through Christ. All of this has taken place. One faith. And this is interesting. We all have the same doctrinal core and like-minded regarding the faith that was once delivered for all the saints. But does that mean that every single little bitty detail... 
If you believe that you should start keeping the Sabbath at you know, 5.30 and I say, no, I, I'm more comfortable at 6, does that mean, okay, we don't meet together anymore? We all have the same faith as far as the essentials. You know, there's a quote and there's a division on who has actually been cited as quoting this. And it actually might have been a quote, you know, some people say, uh, you know, St. Augustine. And I'm not one of those to take, you know, people from the past or church figures or from church history as scripture in any way, shape or form. But sometimes there is a quote that I, I actually do like. And I think that is true, and that is, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and all things, charity. In essential things, we are unified. We know that Christ is Lord. We know that you know, there's a kingdom of God. We know that Christ died, rose again, and He's coming back. And there's other things we could actually, you know, we could have a discussion on what's essential and what's not essential. That doesn't mean that non-essentials are important. It just means that, you know, those are things that, you know... <laughs> we hope and we believe that you know, maybe God's not going to have you when he resurrects you and says, well, you didn't, you, know, you didn't do this quite right here. You know, there was some pork in that, uh, that sandwich that you ate at that Arby's. I saw it. And I, I tell you what, I, you were on, you know, skating on thin ice. Of course, we don't take that lightly. We believe that you shouldn't eat those things. But that's not something that we, we look at and say, oh, my, I tell you what, I better go pray because what if I die on the way home? I might go to hell. Those are the kind of things, and those, those are the types of things that I'm saying. In all things, charity. In all things, love. In all things, it, when we disagree on some of these things that are, you know, maybe they're important, uh, but, but, but are they as important as basically the unity that we, that we are supposed to hold together as Christ or a part of Christ's uh, body? One baptism and one God. These things right here is Paul is trying to implore us to keep the unity of the body. Because we are all a part of this body. We are all together. There's a unity. There's a oneness. But then Paul goes on and talks about a diversity, which is very interesting. Although we are all part of this one body, there's one spirit, there's one baptism, one Lord, one hope, one spirit, one body. There's also a diversity when it comes to the gifts that he has distributed to his believers and to his followers. Let's read verse 7 through 15 again real quick. Or at least verse... Yeah, let's just go ahead and read the rest of 7 through 15. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But they, he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning crack craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head of Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself and love. Now there's one really interesting passage right here, and we're going to kind of quickly just touch upon it, and that is the idea that Christ is distributed gifts. You know, right here Paul tells us, and there's other passages that uses the same language, that Christ has, you know, according to his pleasure, 
measured us different levels of grace. Now, Paul's not saying that, you know, you have full grace, so, you know, you're saved, but you, you got a little grace, but you got some work to do on the side if you want to get salvation. Paul's not talking about grace in the sense that, you know, he hasn't fully given, you know, his grace to us in regards to salvation. He's using this term grace in terms of basically distributing abilities for the purpose of the functioning of the church. For example, we know that 1 Peter 4, verse 10 I'll just read it real quick. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the varied grace of God. And so God has given us a diversity of gifts, and some gifts are going to be uh, maybe more visible than others, but it doesn't mean that another person's gift is any less important. Romans, the 12th chapter, also talks about this. All of them talk about one body for one purpose, but diverse gifts. Okay? All of them talk about one body one spirit, but diverse gifts. Right here in this passage, there's an interesting, uh, I guess you would say, th there's debate on it. Uh, some say, or see, we know that the origin of when Paul says, when he ascended on high, he led captive, captivity captive and gave gifts to men. We do know that the influence of this, at least in its original, comes from the, the, the 68th Psalm in verse 18. Okay, many people have interpreted this differently simply because that's not exactly what is read in both what is called the LXX, the Septuagint, that's the Greek version of the Old Testament, as well as the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text of the Old Testament. In those passages, what is being said is that he received gifts and didn't give gifts. And so we are not quite sure exactly what Paul is trying to do here. But the most logical explanation, and it might not be correct, is that Paul is trying to basically use an analogy. The analogy of his day, because back in these days, when a military or any kind of army, a king, they captured a city or they became victorious, what they would do is they would receive honor, they would receive gifts, they would receive plunder. And so Paul right here seems to be using this analogy uh, just as the Lord has received gifts, praised by men, honored by men, in being victorious over death because he went to the deepest parts of the earth. We know that, and some people have a different views of viewing that, but he descended to earth, to the lower parts, but not just to the surface of the earth, but even to the grave, to the one of the most humble places a person could be, and that is someone that's not breathing or heart is beating. Okay? And that as he is a victor, just like a victor in military battle would distribute among his comrades or his followers gifts, so Jesus, he is rightfully able to distribute among us, his church, the members of his body, gifts. And we know that there are offices specifically mentioned right here that enables the church to function. Many of these have overlapping functions. You know, we know the apostles, special individuals who were sent out and commissioned with a special authority as a delegate of God. Prophets, we know that prophets is another term that pops up in the New Testament. There were prophets in the New Testament. We know that this is a continuation of the prophets that were in the Old Testament. Prophets were a specific office that people had a gift that they had. Uh, sometimes these prophets could uh, reiterate already previously known revelation, but sometimes these prophets had a gift because they had been given a word from the Lord and would reveal something truthful about God's plan and what God wanted to have to say. Without these individuals, and we should all be thankful we're not thankful for men. We're thankful for God in the way that he does these things. Uh, we should all be thankful for these offices that were given to the church because without it, we do not have a New Testament. We do not have a New Testament church. 
Quite simply, when we look at the history of the church, what we see is, is God raised up men, empowered them, and it was through Him, through Christ, not of themselves, and they went out in the face of adversity, planted church, and because of that, our faith has been preserved and is lived on. Of course, we know that's because Christ Himself was, is a living, raised Savior, and of course, we knew it would prevail. And then, of course, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and we know pastors, they're overseers, the shepherds of the flock. You know, we have been lucky in this congregation to have many men who have been overseers of this congregation for, as I mentioned earlier, 30 plus years. You know, we have elders in this church that have worked in this church for many, many years. We've also had people who weren't elders. They weren't a part of the official ministry of the church, but they, they acted in some ways as overseers, not in necessarily the word, but maybe of, of, of other things. I think of, maybe everyone in here would probably agree with me, a man by the name of Roger Hausman. Wasn't an official elder of this church that I know of, but in the sense, he was an overseer. And what was interesting in remembering and from hearing stories, even though he was an ordained elder, our elders had a great respect for this man. An older man, experienced. Uh, I've always looked at him as being kind of, you know, uh, someone who was instrumental to some extent in some of the, the, the decisions made in the midpoint of this church and helping uh, being a, I guess you would say, a confidant or, or, or a uh, giving advice. And advice that, that the, the, the elders of this church greatly respected. And I think because of that, uh, this church has been greatly blessed. Because I think that I'm a firm believer that God uh, worked through him to help uh, bring clarity to our elders who were our decision makers during those times. But what's interesting is that the purpose of these gifts, the purpose of these offices, ministry, ministers or pastors and teachers, was to equip the members. Literally, a word in the Greek that means preparing, mending, or restoring people to their proper use. Equip for the work of ministry. The members are part of the ministry right here. It's not that, hey, you have the ministers... They do, you know, the official work of the church, and everybody else just kind of supports them. That's an old model that we know is not biblical. That's not the way that the New Testament teaches us. It does not teach us to pay and pray, or pray and pay, or pay and pray, whatever you want to say. And that just basically means it does not teach us that we just give her money, we give her support, they do the work, and we just, you know, wait around and look at the fruit from it. The New Testament tells us that we, all of the members, are to get involved. Verse 16 says, From him the whole body grows, fitted and held together through every supporting ligament. As each one does its part, the body grows in love. The purpose is to the maturity of the church. He talks about babes, to and fro, being, you know, every wind of doctrine, divisive things. It's all about moving the church, the body of Christ, continuously through time, to a maturity, till eventually the fullness of Christ takes place. And we know that the eventual fullness of Christ will be whenever he returns. We know the eventual fullness of Christ, when we are in complete unity. We're not going to be perfect in this lifetime, but we can strive, and we should continue to strive right here. All right? I want to just conclude right here. Two things we brought out today. Live up, live worthy to our calling and as well as 
Use the gifts. Use what Christ has given us. I don't want to be a downer here, but I can tell you this. I cannot tell you what your gift is. I can't tell you what your place in the church or body of Christ is. That's something that you have to figure out through the working, through prayer. But I can say this, and this is something I have a lot of confidence in. When God gives you a gift, and he wants you to function in the, in the body of Christ in this capacity or that capacity, I firmly don't believe that he's going to make you hate it. It's not going to be something that you just grudge, you cannot stand. I believe it's going to be natural. I believe that that is something that when you learn that gift and you get in that position, and maybe it, it takes a long time to understand. You know, people are lucky sometimes in life, and they know exactly what they want to do at 12 years old, and they consistently stay like that. They knew what they wanted to do, they did it, and they were right. Sometimes it takes time to understand your place in your gift. Maybe it's singing and music. Maybe it's youth. Maybe it's working with the elderly. I think that God will give you a passion for what he has commissioned you to do and wants you to do. And it's interesting because I also think that it's through experience sometimes that we learn what our gift is. In other words, don't just wait around and say, well, I'm going to sit here in this chair and I want to figure out what my gift is. And just think about it. Sometimes it might take experience, just like that person maybe at 12 years old, they have no idea. They think they want to do this. They go out and they're like, this is not me. When I was in college, I thought I was going to be out in sales and business. I went out and started working for a trucking company. Worked as a logistics coordinator. Had my mindset on business and marketing and sales for many years. Went out and started doing it. And I was like, this is horrible. This is not me. Because it didn't fit what, you know, my capabilities. It didn't fit my skill levels. It didn't fit, you know, my personality. And so it was on the job I learned, this isn't for me. And so what I implore you to do, we're going to have a visionary meeting today after the church. I implore you to stay. I implore you to get involved, you know, participate. We in this church and in all church, in the body of Christ, all of us can use your service in some capacity. Because you have a gift and you have God's Holy Spirit. So I implore all of us, don't wait. Jump in. There's no harm in learning, that's not my gift. There's no harm in that. But you're closer, and you can at least mark something off if you learn through experience that really that's not, that's not you know, what God is wanting me to do. I can tell you this much. There's a couple of individuals, as I close in this church, where I have for years, and I said, what in the, how are you not speaking? You're so involved in all these different things, and I'm like, you don't speak? You know what they told me? It's not natural to me. I don't, I've done it. I don't feel like it's what God's calling me to do. And you know what? That's, that's true. But, again, don't think that it's the ministry or the ministers that are involved in ministry. All of us are involved in ministry. So a word that means service. All of us have something to add, something to contribute to this church. And I can tell you this much. I can, we know, uh, I think most of you agree. I don't want to call names out. There's particular individuals in this congregation that do so much uh, that they have nothing to do with the pulpit whatsoever. But let me tell you, their gift is being utilized, and they are essential to this congregation. And I can tell you what, that is in congregations all over the place. So I implore you, two things, live up worthy to your calling and utilize what God has given you.